0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you.
1: The first scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. For if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, HE WILL COMMAND HIS ANGELS CONCERNING YOU TO GUARD YOU CAREFULLY. THEY WILL LIFT YOU UP IN THEIR HANDS SO THAT YOU WILL NOT STRUCK YOUR FOOT AGAINST THE STONE. JESUS ANSWERED, IT IS SAID, DO NOT PUT THE LORD YOUR GOD TO THE TEST. WHEN THE DEVIL HAD FINISHED ALL HIS TEMPTING, HE LEFT HIM UNTIL AN OPPORTUNE TIME. HEAR THE WORD OF THE LORD.
0: THE SECOND READING TODAY, uh, IT COMES FROM The book of Daniel, uh, I'm reading chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenez, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of, the lord, my, of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do be seated. I hope you've got that passage from the book of Daniel open in front of you, and also uh, you should have received an outline, a sermon outline with some uh, pictures on the way, uh, you should have received that on the way in the door. Now in the year 597 BC, the city of Jerusalem, the royal city of King David and the site of the temple of his son Solomon, was besieged and conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the truly extraordinary figures of the ancient world. As crown prince, he had proved himself a successful general, winning a famous victory over Pharaoh Necho II at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. But now he had become king, indeed emperor, over Babylon. And he was known not just as a general, but as a great builder. He rebuilt Babylon until it was known, even to this day, for its temples and its gate for its its gates, its spectacular architecture. The Ishtar Gate, which is now in Berlin, some people may have seen it there, was covered in glazed blue bricks and richly decorated with pictures of animals. It must have just glistened on the desert plain. And an inscription on that gate reads, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, pious prince, the favorite of the god Marduk, exalted ruler who is the beloved of the god Nabu, the one who deliberates and acquires wisdom, the one who constantly seeks out the ways of their divinity and reveres their dominion, the indefatigable governor who is mindful of provisioning provisioning the gods Esagil and Isadar daily and who constantly seeks out good things for Babylon, the wise and pious one who provides for Esagil and Isadar. Foremost heir of Nabu King of Babylon, am I. According to other inscriptions that we have, Nebuchadnezzar also took on the title Shah Kisati, or King of All That Is. How do you like that for a title? King of all that is. Like most emperors, his mission was not just to extend his power and his wealth but to spread Babylonian culture throughout the world. That was his mission. He might take the plunder of foreign lands, but he would give to them the benefit of the wisdom, literature, art, and religion of Babylon, the most sophisticated culture in the world. Reality from now on would be Babylonian reality. Time would be Babylonian time. Space would be Babylonian space. So much, you might think, for the God of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, marched into the temple of the Lord and carried off the sacred vessels there, brought them back to the treasure house of his God, like some trinkets, souvenirs. And what did the Lord God do to stop him? Not a thing. There could be no stronger theological statement, could there, about the failure of Judah's God Was he caught napping or was he simply impotent? How could he allow such a humiliation to occur, not just to his people, but indeed to his own name? And well, we might think the same today in the face of the cultural, economic and political powers that dominate our world. They seem to kick sand in God's face with every passing day, sometimes explicitly rejecting him and his way, sometimes just through ignoring him. But on a closer look at these opening verses of the book of Daniel, and indeed at this whole first chapter, we'll find that there's something else going on. How was it that Nebuchadnezzar succeeded? Can you see it there in those verses? Was it because of the superior power of his gods? Because of his impressive skill and wisdom? Or because his culture was stronger? Or because he discovered some technology that outflanked the Israelites? what do we see in verse 2 of chapter 1 and the lord delivered jehoiakim king of judah into nebuchadnezzar's hand who was responsible for the defeat of judah the desecration of the temple and the exile of the people of god it was the lord of judah it was the sovereign god his hand was behind all that occurred now Why did God cause his his own name to be disgraced in such a way? Well, that's, that's a great question, and it's a question that sits live in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a question that the Old Testament wrestles with on page after page. And the answer lies not with God's weakness, but with the faithlessness and corruption and idolatry of his people. Which is a story for another day you need to read the book of isaiah or the book of ezekiel or the book of jeremiah to find that discussion taking place but the point here in the book of daniel is that even when you have a nebuchadnezzar on the scene he is not really the king of all that is his power even when it gleams like the blue glaze of his mighty city is like the mist. It's ephemeral. It will go as quickly as it came. It may look impassable and impregnable, but it is fragile. The Lord's power, on the other hand, may not look like much. It may not yet gleam, but it is ever-present in failure as well as in success, in the forgotten, as well as amongst the renowned, in suffering, as well as in triumph. But what will the mighty Nebuchadnezzar do now that he has conquered Judah? Well, all empires want to assimilate those who they conquer into their reality? And the smart ones realise that force is not the only way, in fact, it's not the best way to do that. Nebuchadnezzar's policy is a typical one. It's one that good empires observe. The British Empire certainly uh, did this. He selects the best and brightest boys from his conquered vassals and gives them a scholarship to Babylon Grammar so that they can be immersed in the Babylonian way of life, their culture, literature, and language. It was a three-year course with the promise of a high-ranking public service job at the end. And the diet as they went through this, was from the finest of foods from the royal table. You can imagine the connections that these boys would have had with the elite of Babylonian culture. It was an entry into the highest of the highest of civilizations. And it certainly seems like a humane and constructive policy, doesn't it? I mean, as I said, our cultures do this to this day. we offer scholarship, for instance, for indigenous students from the bush to our finest private schools uh, in the British Empire. Uh, The cream of Indian aristocracy ended up with educations at Oxford and Cambridge. It seems like it's constructing a coherent civilization. And it's ultimately about ruling via culture rather than by force but a measure of how far it will go will be seen can be seen in verses 6 and 7 four of the young chosen young men were called daniel hananiah mishael and azariah and as a sign of their transition to babylonian reality they're given new names they have new identities whereas the old names had to do with the god of israel one of whose names was el uh, daniel for instance daniel means for instance god is my judge they are now given new names, and these new names link them to the gods of Babylon. Belteshazzar means Bel protects his life. Shadrach means command of the moon god. Meshach means who is like Aku. And Abednego means servant of the god Nebo. And just for a fun fact, our city in Australia of Bendigo is named after Abednego. Uh, that's just a fun and irrelevant fact of no consequence here. What the Jewish young men are being invited to do is to forget their previous identities, attached as they are to an outmoded and defeated God, and to become completely new people whose faith, whose very selves are now in the civilization and the gods of Babylon. This is still how cultures and civilizations work today. We too live in an empire in which God seems absent or powerless, And the forces that govern our world invite us, too, to assimilate to them as much as possible if we're to share in what they have to offer. We're invited to believe what they believe, that happiness is the point of your life, that time is a commodity running out, that your significance and value as a person consists in your achievements and your possessions and your reputation. But here's what makes things complicated for Daniel and his mates and for us, too. What Babylon is offering is not all bad, you'd have to say. It isn't a simple and straightforward choice between good and evil. We really, I think, we'd prefer if things were, were clearer for us. If, if we lived in a world that was more like Star Wars, where uh, the representatives of the, e- the empire are easy to spot because they just look evil, because they wear black capes and Nazi-style helmets and are called things like Darth Vader. You know he's evil, right? And the goodies wear white. That's how it operates in that world, but that's not how things are in the reality that we actually live in. What Nebuchadnezzar has to offer is not all bad. It's an education, the finest education there is. He's offering a share of the blessings of the very empire that he's built. He's offering a share in the power of it, in the running of it. And after all, the sack of Jerusalem has occurred because the people of God themselves have been faithless and corrupt and the judgment of God is against them. The Supposed goodies are perhaps not so good and the baddies not so bad. So what are the young men to do? What will resisting the empire look like for them? Well, what Daniel resolves to do is not to accept the royal food and wine. And so he respectfully asks for permission not to eat it. He's very respectful, isn't he? He's not belligerent in his resistance. He's quite respectful and gentle and even quiet about it. He's not making some great scene and putting it on Instagram so we can all see. He's not putting up a public petition or anything like that. He's quietly but respectfully refusing the food from the table. And this causes Ashpenaz, the chief official, a little bit of concern because he says, look, Daniel, your conscience, fine, don't eat the food, but (laughs) this may lead to adverse consequences for me because if Daniel just eats vegetables, if these guys don't eat the food, they're going to look scrawny. They're not going to look like the hot, fine young men they're supposed to look, which won't please the king. And so Daniel persuades him to give their veggie diet, just a little bit, a 10-day trial period, to see if it'll work. At the end of this, we are told, we don't know how. The Hebrew boys look healthier than ever before. And so, with Ashpenaz reassured, they continue their studies, eating only vegetables and drinking only water. And by the hand of God, they are given exceptional wisdom and insight Daniel was even given the ability, much prized amongst the Babylonians, to interpret visions and dreams, a really important skill, as we'll see in the rest of the book of Daniel. In fact, by the end of this course, they could out Babylon Babylon. The king examined them, they were given a kind of uh, examination by the king, and they were found to be peerless in the kingdom, university medals all around. But why was the meat and wine? the thing that Daniel refused. We may have thought that he would more likely refuse the education, which no doubt involved learning about the gods of the Babylonians and about their practices of divination, their magic and necromancy and sorcery and all of that. Was the food perhaps offered to the gods and he didn't want to defile himself by that kind of activity? Well, possibly, but surely being involved in this whole exercise involved him being involved in the Babylonian culture and religion at some point. The problem doesn't seem to be that, neither does the problem seem to be that the food is not kosher. So what's the point? I think the point is that Daniel and his friends determined not to live as if Nebuchadnezzar is king of all that is. They refused to depend on him for everything, for it is not he That God who shapes reality and who rules over all things. It is he who makes things grow. It is God who gives wisdom. It is God who makes kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Not eating the king's food is a way of saying, Nebuchadnezzar, your rule is real. But it is not total you are as dependent on the Lord God for your power as we are for life itself. It's not by magic that Daniel and his friends gained wisdom in their studies, for they already recognize that the Lord God is the source of all that is good and true and wise. They have a killer advantage when it comes to studying at this Babylon grammar course. They know far more than the wise men of babylon can ever know And there's one quite added bracket to the story right at the end for daniel who became advisor to the king himself and no doubt to his son and to his grandson after him was still alive can you see in verse 21 was still alive when a new king came to the throne king cyrus we know from ancient history that this was 539 bc What's significant about that? King Cyrus was not a Babylonian, but the king of a new empire, the empire of Persia, which means that Nebuchadnezzar's gleaming and mighty empire, which appeared so eternal, so vast, so encompassing, so determining of all that is, had barely lasted 60 years. And just like that, we are reminded that the forces that look mighty and powerful in our world do not have the permanence that they claim. Even the mighty Roman Empire had feet of clay. In fact, we'll see from Daniel chapter 2 exactly what feet of clay means for that chapter is where we get the expression feet of clay. What of the forces that rule our world? What are the wealthy and powerful who claim that history goes with them, that they are standing with the tide of history. What of China, or the US, or of capitalism, global capitalism, or of secular liberalism, or what we call Western culture, whatever that is, of big tech, of the mighty corporations of our time, and their superhero leaders? These forces have their power. But they only have their power where the Sovereign Lord permits them. And they are fragile. They cannot last. I mean, just a little bit of remembering our own history, uh, the history which many of us have lived through, ought to tell us this, I remember growing up when the world was divided into west and east, and the Soviet Union and all its allies stood as a mighty force, and yet the no matter in the space of a mere 18 months, the communist bloc disappeared. The Soviet Union melted. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. They are fragile. They cannot last. So what are God's people to do in the meantime? Well, Daniel's renunciation of the king's food is a pointer to his ultimate dependence on God. He does not give himself hook, line, and sinker to Babylon, even as he becomes an expert in Babylonian He is in Babylon, he's very good at being in Babylon, but he is not of Babylon. So what would Daniel make of life in Sydney? How would he be in Sydney? Maybe even an expert in Sydneyism, but not of Sydney. Where would he be happy to assimilate? At what point would he show his resistance? I think the first point we need to get is that there would be a point of resistance. Daniel's belief that the sovereign lord is king of all it is mean that he can out Babylon Babylon without becoming Babylonian to the core. He can become the trusted advisor of the king even as he resists his claim to absolute power. How can we out Sydney Sydney and yet not become Sydneyist to the core? I think this is a real challenge for us. I think, if I'm honest, the challenge for contemporary Christians living as we do in the eastern suburbs of Sydney is that we're afraid of resisting the absolute claims of the culture that's around us, the culture of this gleaming city. We have the same jobs. We have the same real estate. We have the same investment portfolios. We have the same holidays, the same clubs, the same schools for our kids, the same weekend activities. None of these things, of course, is necessarily bad. But at what point are we to see the difference in you? At what point are you resisting? Now, for Daniel, it was with the food. But I don't think it need necessarily be the same for us. I don't think this is a call for us to cancel our bookings at Margaret and Catalina or to give up fine dining. But I think our dependence on the Sovereign Lord could come through in our approach to time. How does our city view time? In the year 2000, of course, we wrote eternity on the Harbour Bridge. And yet it seemed to me a kind of perverse thing to do since this city is obsessed with the shortness of time. We have a desperate approach to time. We live as if the clock is the king of all that is. The best picture of the way we think of it is like an hourglass with the sand running out. Time is an ever-diminishing asset slipping through our fingers, no matter how hard we cling to it, yet we want to grab it as much as we can. And so we have to cram as much as we can into every day, into every week, month, year. We have to seize the day and make the most of it, to work hard and play harder. We cannot wait Hell for Sydneysiders is traffic, or a late bus, or a queue at Coles behind an old person fumbling for change. The Christian knows something different about time. We know that time belongs to the Lord God, that He gives it, and that He governs it. We know that our times are in His hands. We have in him the hope not simply of more time or extra time, but a different kind of time altogether. We might say, rightly, eternity. The resurrection age, which is the new life with him, is our hope. And that means you have time. Our measure of time is not the clock, but God, the alpha and the omega. So that means we can resist The frantic necessity of the clock and practice patience in expectation that God works out all things for the good of those who love him. As the theologian James K.A. Smith writes, To be unhurried is the tangible discipline of hope. To be unhurried, unhurried is a tangible discipline of hope. So here are some ways in which we may, indeed, express this hope, show this resistance to the tyranny of time, the tyranny of the clock, that God of Sydney. We gather, for example, for this hour every week to reset our sense of time and to help our kids know a different kind of time not just as another activity crammed into an already overstuffed week, but as a vital acknowledgement that we depend on God, that God has our times in his hand. We keep sacred, and that's the right word for it, we keep sacred this time for worship each week, even when we get apparently better offers. We pause each day to pray as a sign that our day belongs to God. We practice patience because we express in our patience the priority of love over efficiency and outcomes. We discipline ourselves to rest and ensure where we have power that others can rest because we recognize our dependence on the Lord who made the Sabbath as a gift for human beings that we might rest and acknowledge him in it. Can you imagine... What a, a difference these small acts of resistance might make. Notice how respectful they are. They're not belligerent or rude. They allow us to accept what is good about Sydney, about the world, the world in which we live, and yet not accept it as ultimate, not depend upon it, not become it, not have it shape all of our reality. Let us continue to find ways in which we might, like Daniel in Babylon, live well in this temporary city of Sydney, love it as we do, and yet show that we really belong to the heavenly city, and the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, surrounding the throne of the true king of all that is.